Julia. Hello. So today, let's continue our beer baron adventure and explore the rise and fall of what once was one of Milwaukee's most iconic beer brands, Schlitz. Sounds great. And just as a plug, we did Paps last time. So if you missed that episode, go back. There's drama, intrigue, family, scandal, scandal, all the good stuff. So this is a fun series. Okay, Schlitz, I'm ready. Schlitz, okay. Now, I'm of a particular age that I'm just old enough to remember when Schlitz was not just a mainstream brand, Mm -hmm. but also a dominant one back when I was a little kid. Okay. However, just a few short years later, by the time I was old enough to legally drink beer, Mm -hmm. Schlitz had all but disappeared. In a span of just about 25 years, Schlitz went from being the number one beer in all of America to a corporation that was in deep financial trouble, had closed its flagship brewery in Milwaukee, had lost 90% of its market value, and what little was left of the company was being bid on by three brewing rivals. So let's step back in history and explore how Schlitz got its start, how it grew into one of the world's largest beer brands, and then examine how and why it all seemed to suddenly fall apart by the early 1980s. Our story starts in 1848 with a local German immigrant, August Krug, from Miltenburg, Germany. He had been a supporter of the Revolution of 1848 that sought a more democratic German government with guarantees for human rights. Well, when that cause was lost, he left his homeland in search of that more democratic society in America. And he was just one of the wave of German immigrants that we call the 48ers. He landed in Milwaukee where he and his wife, Anna Maria, established a combination saloon, restaurant, and small brewery at what is today the corner of 4th and Juno Avenue, exactly where the Fison Forum stands today. A year later, Krug's father, Georg, came to Milwaukee, and he arrived with approximately $800 in gold coin as well as August Krug's eight-year-old nephew, August Eli. Krug and his father put the boy in school at the German English Academy, and they invested the $800 to roughly double the size of the brewery. It also allowed Krug to hire additional employees, including a 20-year-old bookkeeper to manage the brewery's accounting. His name was Joseph Schlitz. Within only a few years, Krug found himself as one of the largest brewers in Milwaukee standing shoulder-to-shoulder with both the best brewery and the one owned by Valentin Blatz. In only seven years, he'd managed to increase the volume of the brewery tenfold. However, tragedy struck in late 1855 when August Krug accidentally fell down a hatchway at the brewery, and he died several days later from his injuries. Mm -hmm. After the death of August Krug, the ownership of the business transferred to his wife, Anna Maria, and it was she who convinced the bookkeeper, Joseph Slitz, to stay on with the brewery and to invest in the business as well. Well, I guess you could say that Joseph Schlitz invested pretty heavily in the enterprise, both personally and professionally. For within only two years, Anna Maria and Joseph Schlitz were married. Soon the brewery was renamed and the Joseph Schlitz Brewing Company was born. Under the leadership of Joseph Schlitz, the company enjoyed strong sales and steady growth. However, in 1871, it was a tragedy just 90 miles to the south that ironically was the catalyst for even greater growth. The Great Chicago Fire of 1871 leveled nearly the entire central downtown of Chicago, over three square miles. Over 17,000 buildings were burnt to the ground, 
300 people were killed, and more than 100,000 were left homeless. Local legend has it that immediately after the fire, the Joseph Schlitz Brewery donated thousands of barrels of beer to the suffering city of Chicago. Well, unfortunately, that story is more of a modern myth than anything else, which was pushed by the company later in 20th century advertising campaigns. Mm. The fact is that nearly all of Chicago's breweries were located in and around downtown, and they were nearly all destroyed by the fire, never to reopen again. All of the big breweries in Milwaukee, including Best and Blast and Schlitz, were more than eager to ship beer to Chicago and take market share away from all the local Chicago brewers. And that is probably the fundamental reason why Milwaukee became the center of national beer production and not Chicago. Hmm, I never knew that. Yeah. Well, and of course, St. Louis. Sure. <laughs> in addition, but but in, in its height, Milwaukee still had two-thirds mm-hmm. of national beer distribution compared to one-third at, in St. Louis. Hmm. So, you know, Chicago, uh, St. Louis had Anheuser-Busch, the right. massive, but, but we had, you know, those three other big ones and Miller. Sure. So that's why it was two-thirds to one-third. Makes sense. Yeah. Yeah. All right. In addition, the Great Chicago Fire forced the big Milwaukee brewers to quickly learn and adapt to long-distance logistics, skills that would directly lead to becoming national brands and the exponential growth in sales that followed. Schlitz began employing sales agents all across the country to sell their beer, and they developed a vast railroad distribution network. By 1875, Joseph Schlitz was one of Milwaukee's most successful beer barons, and was more than able to afford a vacation in his homeland in Germany. He was also an avid marksman. So that year, he took a trip to Germany to compete in a shooting tournament, as well as to visit with friends and family in his hometown of Miltenburg. Hmm. Unfortunately, on his return passage to the U.S., the ship he was on, the German ocean liner SS Schiller, tragically struck the rocks off the coast of England near Land's End. The ship went down along with 335 passengers and crew, including Joseph Schlitz. He was only 44 years old. Schlitz's body was never found, and so if you visit his grave at Beer Baron's Corner at Forest Home Cemetery, there is a massive monument to Joseph Schlitz. It even features a carving of the ship that he went down with. Which, by the way, Schlitz's monument is actually called a cenotaph, Okay. Uh, which is a memorial marker for someone whose physical remains are located somewhere else and why it's not called a gravestone. Hmm. Yeah, that's something I picked up on one of the tours at uh, Forest Home Cemetery. They do great tours. They do. Once again, Anna Maria was left a widow with a brewery on her hands. This time around, when Joseph Schlitz died, her first husband's nephew, August Eloy, the same one who'd come to America with his grandpa, Georg, had grown up, and he was now the bookkeeper for the Schlitz Brewing Company. And so once again, Anna Maria called on the bookkeeper to be the one to take charge of running the brewery. August Eli suddenly became the head of the company and his three brothers were right there to help help him run the business. Although according to Joseph Schlitz's will, the name had to remain the Joseph Schlitz Brewing Company. Interesting, Mm -hmm. okay. The Elias were particularly talented at maximizing the profits from the Tide House distribution system. Back in the late 1800s, nearly all of the beer sold in America was distributed through local taverns or bars. Keep in mind, this was a time when we didn't have supermarkets, canned beer, automobiles, or home refrigeration. Mm-hmm. 
And in case you're wondering, a tied house was a tavern with an agreement to serve only the beer made by one specific brewery. Mm -hmm. In many, if not most cases, the taverns were actually owned by the brewery and leased to an operator. And at other times, the brewery would sign a contract with an independent tavern owner. And so these taverns were tied to a specific, specific brewery. So it wasn't uncommon to have multiple tied house taverns at any given intersection. Sure. Uh, in Milwaukee, Astor and Brady Street is just one example. It's a great example, yeah. Yeah, there's Regano's Roman Coin. That mm -hmm. was a Pabst Tavern. And across the street uh, was a Schlitz Tavern. Yeah. And in fact, you can still see the Schlitz tile mosaic yeah. on that building. It's so cool. In addition to taverns, the company built and ran a number of significant real estate and leisure developments in the late 1800s. There was the Schlitz Park Beer Garden, located just a few blocks from the brewery. The Schlitz Hotel and the adjacent Schlitz Palm Garden, a massive indoor beer hall on Grand Avenue, and the Eli Theater, also in downtown Milwaukee. And because a great brand needs a great logo, they launched their Belted Globe logo in 1892, which was soon followed by the advertising slogan, The Beer That Made Milwaukee Famous, mm -hmm. which debuted in 1893 at the Chicago World's Fair. Perfect. Great example of the logo sits atop a corner turret of the Three Brothers restaurant in Bayview. Yeah. Which, by the way, you can see in person on HMI's Bayview tour. Yes. And is a great stop for eating. Like, they have really a good food. Restaurant. Great restaurant. A must. And we should say, specifically, it's a three-dimensional globe. This is not a, this is not a, like a mosaic or a yeah, sign. It's, it's it like is a, a, it's like a sculpture. Sculpture, definitely. Yeah. So the Ewing brothers were extremely skilled at picking out prime locations for their taverns, and Schlitz grew from the 10th largest brewery when the Eli's took over to the third largest near the end of the century, and then the largest in the world by 1902, selling over 1 million barrels of beer for the first time ever, surpassing both Anheuser-Busch and local Milwaukee rival Pabst. When asked about the company, when asked about how the company enjoyed such a period of massive success, Alfred Eline, one of the four original Eline brothers, remarked, well, I suppose we had ideas. One of them was that we must make good beer. Seems like a great baseline. Yeah, kind of a base, right? <laughs> yeah. You know, to start there. Good product. So growth and innovation continued for the next several years. And in 1912, Schlitz began bottling its beer in brown bottles, an innovation that helps prevent light from spoiling the beer. By then, but then in 1920, another tragedy of sorts struck the company. This time it wasn't in the form of a death in the family. This, this time it came in the form of prohibition. Yes. Every brewer in the country, not just Schlitz, was put to the test to come up with new ideas how to simply stay in business and keep the lights on. Schlitz began making and selling malt extract, mm -hmm. near beer, and Schlitz ginger ale, just to keep the equipment running. And in case you're wondering, mm -hmm. you've never heard of malt extract. Right. That is the sweet sugary syrup left from boiling down malted barley. And when you buy malt extract, mm -hmm. um, if you add water uh, and heat mm -hmm. and yeast, uh, you can come up with your own beer. There we go. So it was a pretty popular product uh, during sure. Prohibition. Yeah. Uh, one venture during Prohibition that the Eli family went in and, and all in on was developing and launching the E-Line Chocolate Bar. The thought was that if people couldn't buy alcohol, they would turn to chocolate instead. And the name E-Line was a clever phonetic spelling of the family name. Sure. 
the family invested uh, literally millions of dollars into a state-of-the-art candy-making factory on Port Washington Road, which was directly across the street from where Sally's Butters, Butter Burgers is today in Glendale. Mm-hmm. And the plan was for it to be the family's transformation from beer barons to, well, Willy Wonka. <laughs> Seemingly no expense was spared in the building of the facility. It featured floors made of Italian marble, fireplaces in every office, hand-hewn and hand-carved wooden timbers on the gatehouse, and a pair of superbly hand-crafted wrought iron gates produced by legendary iron worker Cyril Coleman. Gotta go big. Gotta go big. Go big or go home. <laughs> Unfortunately, the chocolate business was as cutthroat and competitive as any business in America. And so the Eline brand of chocolate bars struggled right from the beginning. Mm. What may have summed up this whole misadventure into chocolate making was the fact that they used a light coating of oil to keep the foil wrappers from sticking to the chocolate. Mm-hmm. That itself was not unusual. However, the oil that they used just happened to be manufactured from natural fish oils. Ew. And so after the chocolate bars they manufactured and then transported to retail locations in trucks and then sat on the shelf for a while, it turns out that nobody really wants a fishy flavored chocolate bar. Ew. That's <laughs> all I got on that one. Ew. <laughs> It's estimated the company lost about $17 million before they finally pulled the plug in 1928. Wow. For the Joseph Schlitz Brewing Company and the Eline family, 1933 and the end of Prohibition couldn't come soon enough. Yeah. And in case you're wondering again, that $17 million would be about $275 million in losses today. It's a lot of fishy chocolate bars. It is. So after Prohibition, Schlitz seemed to pick up right from where it left off in 1920. Schlitz innovations included the first all-aluminum beer can, the first 16-ounce flat-top can, better known as the Tall Boy, and the first pop-top cans. So throughout the 1940s and through most of the 1950s, it was Schlitz and Budweiser who battled it out year after year as to which one would take home the crown of best-selling beer in America. The title was passed back and forth until 1957 when Budweiser took the title and has never looked back. Okay. However, Schlitz remained the number two brewery in the country throughout the decade of the 1960s and well into the 1970s. And then, the decisions made by Robert Eline, the third generation Eline to run the company, would have catastrophic implications for the company. Mm. In the early 1970s, Robert Eline came to the conclusion that if Schlitz was not going to beat Anheuser-Busch as the number one brewery in size, then Schlitz would become number one in profitability. Okay. The first step to save money was to implement what Schlitz called the Accelerated Batch Fermentation Process, or ABF, which was a process that reduced the brewing cycle time and especially the amount of time required to age the beer. Okay. They managed to cut the aging time from around 25 days to 21 days. And then they shortened it again from 21 to 15 days. Hmm. Now, compare that to the 32 to 40 days of storage it requires to make the number one selling Budweiser. Significant. Yeah, significantly less time. In addition, the company started choosing to use less and cheaper ingredients in the making of what was currently being marketed as the most carefully brewed beer in the world. Real malted, real malted barley is too expensive. 
Let's start using corn syrup instead. Mm. Fresh hops, also too expensive. Let's use those processed hops pellets instead. At first, the strategy seemed to be working. By the mid-1970s, Schlitz had the most efficient plants in the world. Its profits to sales ratio and its capacity utilization were significantly higher than anyone else in the industry. Unfortunately, what may look good on an accountant's spreadsheet may not be so good for the quality of what's going out the door and consumed by the customers. Mm. With all the changes made to both the ingredients and the brewing process itself, customers started noticing a change in the taste and in the appearance of their beer. As Beer Connoisseur Magazine put it, quote, it might have been possible to make small changes from A to B and from B to C that may have been tiny and unnoticeable to the average beer drinker. Mm -hmm. But going from A to, let's say, M was a huge leap that led to big problems. Okay. And so it was then decided that the answers to these problems with quality could easily be solved with the miracles of science. To make a somewhat long and complicated story short, the scientists at Schlitz started adding chemicals to make up for the shortfalls caused by the shortened cooling process. Chemicals were added to artificially do the natural aging or lagering process does. Natural aging of a lager beer improves the carbonation, it naturally clarifies the beer, and it helps to settle out any unwanted impurities. Mm -hmm. To keep their cycle times to a minimum, Schlitz had to use chemical anti-hazing additives to clear up the beer and add foam stabilizers to keep the beer from going completely flat. Mm. It turns out that the combination of chemicals that Schlitz was adding to their brew triggered the formation of protein chains in the beer at certain temperatures. At best, these protein chains looked like tiny white snowflakes floating in the beer. Mm-hmm. And at worst, it looked and felt like big globs of snot. Ew. As one keen observer ew, again. described it. It wasn't long before Schlitz was forced to secretly recall over 10 million bottles wow. of beer, costing the company over $1.2 million. And I guess that in the same way that people don't want fishy-flavored chocolate, they don't want big globs of snot in their beer either. Presumably it would have been flat beer, too. Yeah. Oh, dear. <laughs> Even worse. So to prevent the snot from forming, Schlitz decided to discontinue using the foam stabilizing additive. Mm-hmm. And unfortunately, because of the early decisions to cut back on quality ingredients, the already low barley and hot content caused the beer to quickly go flat without those chemical additives. So what you just said, exactly. Bummer. So for months, the company kept quiet about all the quality problems they were having. However, Schlitz drinkers knew that something was wrong uh, with what had been their favorite brand. And so they left, never to return. Hmm. So much for making good beer, as old Alfred Elan had once said. And sales plummeted. No surprise. To make matters worse, Robert Eline suddenly died of leukemia shortly after this whole ABF saga. Mm-hmm. And the company went through a number of CEOs and board chairmen as sales continued to drop below Miller and then Pabst and then Heilman over the next few years. Mm-hmm. In 1977, the new CEO decided that a new and clever ad campaign was a solution to turn around the damaged image of Schlitz. Sure. What they came up with was a series of TV commercials that were meant to be funny and amuse viewers, similar to what Miller Lite was doing at the same time. Mm-hmm. In the ads, an off-screen man tells the on-screen characters 
their Schlitz is being taken away and being substituted with another brand of beer. The on-screen characters featured a Muhammad Ali-like boxer, okay. uh, a lumberjack with a pet mountain lion, mm -hmm. uh, and a group of construction workers at a bar. Mm -hmm. So when told that their Schlitz was being taken away, the boxer threatened to knock the man unconscious. Mm -hmm. The lumberjack threatened to have the man eaten for lunch by his mountain lion. And the construction workers threatened to have the man dumped into concrete and then turned into a high-rise cornerstone or a freeway offering. What? Yeah, these two ads turned out to be a complete disaster. Instead of being funny or amusing, the ads had the opposite effect with con as consumers actually found the commercials menacing. And it has since gone down in history and advertising circles as the drink Schlitz or I'll kill you ad campaign. I mean, not far off. Yeah. Then, as if nothing else could go wrong for Schlitz, by early 1981, the Milwaukee plant was up for union contract renewal. And as you might imagine, the struggling company offered no increase in pay to its union workers, even though perhaps the Miller had just recently negotiated a dollar an hour increase at their facilities mm. in Milwaukee. Not only that, but the company threatened to eliminate any and all non-union, eliminate all union jobs not directly associated with the brewery process itself, oh. including the delivery workers who had been a function of the brewery since the days of August Krug and Joseph Schlitz. So on June 1st, 1981, with no deal in place, over 700 workers walked off the job. And just two months later, the company board of directors made the decision to permanently close the flagship brewery in Milwaukee. Hmm. By this stage, the company as a whole was operating in the red, and the board of directors were willing to merge with just about anybody willing to buy the Schlitz operations. In October 1981, competing bids were placed by Heilman and then passed the to purchase Schlitz, mm -hmm. only to be rejected by the Justice Department on the grounds of anti-competition. Oh, yeah, as there can do. Yeah, and then in June of 1982, the Justice Department approved a $500 million bid by the Detroit Brewers Stroh mm -hmm. to purchase all of Schlitz. In retrospect, it turned out to be a bad deal for, for Stroh because the debt they had to incur to buy a nearly worthless brand proved to be too much to carry, and then Stroh went out of business in 1999. Mm. In the end, the story of what happened to Schlitz has actually become a case study that is taught in American business schools today, but not in a good way. No. As journalist Jock Nair Put it in his article entitled, What Went Wrong? It was featured in the Milwaukee Journal. He said it's, quote, a classic tale of human failing. The Schlitz saga now serves as a reminder for those who might lose sight of the fact that a company, no matter how modern its plants, how endowed it the balance sheet, or how lionized by Wall Street analysts, is really no stronger than the human beings that manage it. Hmm. So today, much, though not all, of what was the Schlitz brewery in Milwaukee still stands mm -hmm. and has been successfully converted to office space, uh, part of Milwaukee Public Schools, yep. and of course the Brown Bottle Pub, which was first opened as a tasting room for Schlitz in 1938, with its dark wood furnishings, celebrity photos, and antler chandeliers. <laughs> as for the beer itself, the Schlitz brand has actually managed to survive as part of Blue Ribbon Intermediate Holdings' portfolio of brands. It underwent a complete relaunch in 2008 that featured an ad campaign based on the classic 1960s formula, 
And so today you can still, quote, go through the gusto, as the old Schlitz TV ads used to say. Wow. Yeah. And that's our story for today. That's a great story. I mean, it's very sad. but It's tragic. But the I really think the comment from um, the journalist about it being really about the people, I think that's kind of quintessentially Milwaukee in so many ways. It's that that ethos of it being about the people. Yeah, I agree. The other thing which is cool is that they recently completed last year in 2021 an enormous mural on the Schlitz campus yes. that you can see on the side of their, I think it's the electric, would have been like the powerhouse. It's on that that building. Yeah, and it faces the south, so you can see it from like the Pfizer Forum. Yeah, lots and, of places. And Water Street. Yeah. It's, it's, it's cool. a cool, it's sort of hallmark of Schlitz, but also some touchstones of Milwaukee history, Harley and other stuff. So that's yet another reason to go. Cause you can, their campus is open. You can go walk around among the buildings and right. along got, the river. They've got all kinds of different uh, plaques and things yeah. that note where, you know, what this building was yeah. and what that was. And so, yeah, the brewery is still there. It just doesn't make beer anymore. It doesn't make beer anymore. But it's still with us. Yeah. Well, thank you. Oh, thank you, Julia.